0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that Wisconsin leads the nation in the production of specialty cheeses, accounting for 47% of the total? To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com.
2: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network.
3: Yeah, that's right. It's Monday. That means it's time for what doesn't kill you, food industry insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. And uh, we have a great program today. It's kind of going to be a little segue between my little series on dairy that, um, for those of you who follow regularly, has been going since January. Um, and now I'm going to sort of move from dairy into water. And my guest today is going to help me bridge that gap. Um His name is Francis Tickey, and uh, Francis, with his wife Susan, is the owner and operator of an organic dairy and crop farm uh, near Fairfield, Iowa. They process their milk on their farm, and they market organic dairy products through local grocery stores and restaurants, and they are also experimenting with innovative regenerative Organic farming practices on the farm. Francis has a PhD in agronomy, soil fertility, and has in the past served as the national program leader for soil science for the USDA Extension Service. He is the author of A New Vision for Iowa Food and Agriculture, and he currently serves as the chair of the Organic Farmers Association Policy Committee, which he has been at since 2017. He's also the chair of the Real Organic Standards Board, and he has just stepped down as the chair of Crop. Subcommittee Vice Chair of Livestock Subcommittee for the National Organic Standards Board, uh, a position he held from 2013 until today, uh, until this year. Um, Francis, thank you so much for joining me on the show. You have an incredible CV. I mean, you've basically done it all and done it all right, it sounds like.
4: <laughs> thank you,
3: Katie. <laughs> you're welcome. No, I mean, really, it's like you're like the boots on the ground. You're the guy who's figuring this out. So let's just for a few minutes talk about... Um, about uh, organic dairy and dairy in general. And then we'll move on beyond that into sort of like, I want to talk a little bit about soil regeneration, which obviously you know a great deal about being a PhD and how that's sort of becoming a bit of a new trend. Um, And then we'll talk a little bit about, um, you know, nutrient uptake in uh, rivers, streams, and lakes and how that's uh, having an effect on people's drinking water and whatever else I thought to throw into this. (laughs) <laughs> into this hodgepodge of a show um, but let's start with the dairy farming so how do you make dairy farming work in uh, first of all a collapsing industry although the dairy organic dairy is not collapsing but dairy in general is and and in a state that isn't particularly well known I would say for its organic production what what does that say um, how does that work in Iowa to be an organic farmer is that a popular well, pastime
4: and, yeah as you mentioned in your intro um, we process our milk on the farm. yeah we, we market it all locally. So um, this is a market we've developed for, for many years, mm-hmm. 25, 30 years and so um, it, it's, it's different than the commodity market. that's why we mm-hmm. can make it work. We're separate from the commodity market and we have a, a, our product is unique in many ways. It's um, Jersey milk so it's higher in solids and so it's more flavorful, yeah. it's not homogenized, it's grass based, it's organic, it's local. So we have many features that make it um, desirable for our local community,
3: and you can charge top dollar for that, undoubtedly. Which we, you would,
4: we, we charge about the same price as other organic milk products.
3: So, like Stonyfield and Horizon, like the com, you know the sort of what I think of as commodity organic, you're you're in that price range. You don't have to charge higher than that.
4: Right. We actually often are a little lower than them. No
3: kidding. That's amazing.
4: As a matter of fact, I, I'm not really an economist, and I am mostly just kind of farm to have fun and make a living. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but we, we don't try to push it. We try to just set our prices so we can make a living, pay our bills, pay our help, yeah. make a living at it. So we're not trying to push the market price quite as far as we
3: can. Yeah, well, I mean, you want people to buy the product. Yeah. So naturally, you want to keep it within people's, you know, the average person's pocketbook range. So that makes sense to me. Um, But what do you think about the the commodity dairy industry? What is your explanation for why this industry is failing so abjectly as it is now? I mean, I've done like an eight part, you know, eight interviews with various different players in the commodity dairy industry. And I I still, to be honest with you, Francis, I still don't really understand what has gone wrong here. Do you have any insight on what happened?
4: It's really pretty simple. And it has to do with not only dairy, but all crop farming in the U.S. We have a mm-hmm. tremendous overproduction potential. Corn and soybean prices are in the dumps. yeah, And they've been for the last few years because we can produce way more than we can use and we have no control over our supply. The only solution I can see, for example, dairy and crops for that matter in commodity production is we need to have some supply controls. Now, Canada has a dairy quota system. yeah, So they produce as much milk as they need for their country. And it works. Yeah. We, we just, in the U.S., our farmers are very independent. They're not interested in working together to try to keep the market stable. Right. So naturally, we have a total disaster because we can overproduce, and we do overproduce.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think it's incredible that in the face of, I mean, this is, it's not like this is a new story. I mean, dairy has been in the dumps now, I'd say, for really almost a decade. You know, that's when you started seeing the alarm bells going off, it was really about eight years ago, I think. And um, and just in the last couple of years, it's just become so extreme with, you know, dairy farmers either selling out or blowing their brains out or, you know, otherwise throwing in the towel. And and it does all come down to essentially what is a regulation which is a regulation on how much milk you can produce. Now I don't understand how you can tell a dairy farmer how much milk they're allowed to produce, but obviously as you've just pointed out Canada does it quite handily and the standard of living for dairy farming in Canada is much higher than it is in this country. So clearly there is something that works there. So that it comes down to psychology is what you're essentially saying and that's well, what I really also, don't understand.
4: The, the system is really rigged against the farmers. I may mean, yeah. not want to be a conspiracy theorist, but basically Go ahead. <laughs> most of our markets are 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 monopolized. Yes. Economists tell us that when four or fewer firms control uh, control forty percent or more of a market, mm-hmm. that market starts to act like a monopoly. Yeah. And in in dairy, in, in dairy we have that in in beef. In we pork, certainly do. Chicken. Yeah. All of the have it animal it all across ag. the board. So yeah. farmers really, the, the the big corporations push the price down, so farmers can just hang, up, just so they can get enough product, they, they keep farmers going, but but barely, you know. Barely. So so basically, the whole system is, is really rigged against the farmer mm-hmm. th- that they get pushed down to the point where they, they can barely make a living or, or can't make a living.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've had um, Mike, um, Geez, I'm blanking on his last name, but, you know, the Organization for Competitive Markets. He was a guest yeah. a few weeks ago. He's a great guy. And I asked him at one point, I said, like, Mike, well, you know, given the fact that, um, you know, the monopolization of the dairy industry, you know, just as you just said, along with all of animal agriculture... You know, you would think that farmers would be clamoring for a little bit. Uh, first of all, that they would get together better, and also that they would kind of want to vote out this um, very pro-business, pro-monopoly administration. And yet, I said, "Do you think these guys are still going to support the Trump administration come the next election?" He said, "Yeah."
4: <laughs> I'm like, well, Why? they will. But also, we have to bear <laughs> in mind that, um, um, you know, I vote for Democrats. I'll be up up front, but they've been no better. When, when Obama came in, he yeah. did his hearings around the country. I attended one on, on the monopolization of the, the markets. And, right. And in the end, they just jumped ship and they said, we're not going to do anything. The pressure from the corporate world was too great. They couldn't stand yeah. up to it, and they did nothing. And so um, it really goes through both parties that they can't stand up to um,
5: the corporate world.
3: I suppose so, although it's it's the Republican candidates who were getting the big bucks, I think, from the corporations. I mean, in general, they tend to be supported by these big ag concerns to a greater well, degree than yeah, Democrats. you're right that they
4: tend to, um, in companies like, the, I mean, organizations like the Farm Bureau and so on, mm-hmm. they tend to align more with the Republicans.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, but the truth is that all of our politicians are dependent upon on, on campaigns. Absolutely. In, here in Iowa, the Democrats are scared out of their wits by the Farm Bureau, and, <laughs> and if they get out of line, the Farm Bureau will will, will get them unelected, and so yeah. Um, Nobody can, not very few stand up to, to that. And, you know, it's kind of, I don't want to get too far off, but it's kind of like the neoliberal model that our Democrats have kind of fallen into.
5: Yeah. That they're
4: under the control now of the corporations, and they, it doesn't fit the, the, the theory or the philosophy of the Democratic Party, but it, in operation it seems like we've fallen into that path.
3: Well, I, I feel like the neoliberal movement in politics originated with Reagan. Reagan and Thatcher, essentially hand in hand, I think were the biggest proponents of neoliberalism, as I understand it.
4: Yeah, and but, then but going Clinton, forward, Clinton kind of, took a, Clinton kind of fell into yeah, it, he did. It the Democrats,
3: yeah, because he signed the NAFTA it. bill. He signed NAFTA, and yeah, that was exactly. supposed to make everybody happy. And in fact, it has been pretty good for farmers in some ways, hasn't it? I mean, this well, is where it, economics just fail well, me. I don't understand. It has in some
4: but. ways, but what, which farmers? I mean, in Mexico, yeah. the stats are that a million and a half. Mexican farmers lost their livelihoods, and now they're trying to get into the U.S. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's um, you know, I, I don't even think it's really good to think about if it's good for farmers in a perverted way. <laughs> because we, we have a tremendous yeah. potential to overproduce produce anyway. We're going to overproduce no matter what it seems like.
3: Well, that's it. And then, you know, the Republicans are supposedly all about anti-regulation when really this is a case where regulation would be, uh, would be advisable. In my opinion, well, anyway.
4: Yeah, and as a matter of fact, that's a good point, because the organic industry actually has voluntary regulation.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: We rec- we welcome the regulation. You know, organic production is regulated in order to get the organic seal. Oh. So in some cases, regulation can be very helpful.
3: Right. But it's very antithetical. Unless it's regulating my reproductive organs, that the Republicans seem to be very happy doing. <laughs> <laughs> They don't mind regulating that. They don't mind regulating, you know, people's immigration status. But they certainly...
4: yeah, and even like here in Iowa, they're totally, you know, for local control until it comes to something that they don't like. And then they're totally against local (laughs) control.
3: Yeah. Well, such is human nature. Now, let's talk for just a minute about the Farm Bill because... Um, say you were writing the Farm Bill, you, Francis Tickey, and you have worked with USDA, so you kind of know more than the average bear. And Of course, you're a farmer. Um, What would you do to reorganize and revive the U.S. dairy system in general? We're not going to talk about Obviously, organic dairy has, uh, you know, kind of navigated some rocky shoals here. Um, but so for commodity dairy, what would be your plan? Would it just be writing regulatory regulations? Would it be opening new markets? Like Tom Vilsack, who I tried and tried and tried to get on this show, um, he's supposedly, you know, he works for the Dairy Export Federation. And he's supposed to be very busy opening markets to American milk or milk products. Um, what, what do you think would help the dairy industry the most in terms of the well, foreign bill?
4: You know it's good to open markets but the truth is you know other countries they need to be food sovereign also and so hmm. the idea that we're going to sell more milk somewhere and sell more pork and we're going to open up the beef markets and we're going to open up soybeans and corn i mean come on i mean there's there's only so much market around the world and people who need food or are hungry they can't afford to buy it anyway so we're going to sell it to the rich countries and right that's just a, kind of a in the end of the zero-sum game so that's one it, you know there's some something there but I don't see how we're going to really solve the problem until we can control production. Right. We Otherwise, we're just going to be looking for places to dump it.
3: Yeah. That's my impression, and I don't see that the. I mean, as you pointed out uh, earlier, you know, part of the biggest issue is the is the the uh, monopolization of the of the industry by you know things like um, dairy farmers of America and you know the other big yeah. co ops that are controlling the supply and beating the prices. They're acting more like
4: corporate world than they are yeah. like really co ops.
3: Yes, that's right. Yeah, that's one thing I learned in this series. <laughs> They call themselves a co-op, but they pay themselves six figures and they sit in a tow- an office tower and, you know, whatever state it is that they're based in and basically call the shots and buy expensive suits. That seems to be my. <laughs> 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 I read that somewhere else. I ain't making this up. Um, so <laughs> no,
4: no, I sure right, you're right. That's true.
3: <laughs> I mean, they seem very divorced from the population that they're supposed to be helping. Or, part know, of that
4: problem is the farmer should take control because it's a co-op. Farmers have a voice, but they don't seem to, to get organized right and, and make it happen.
3: Well, I wondered about that. I mean, I don't, I don't understand why that's happened. I don't, I really, when you said farmers are very independent and they don't work together, I mean, they are basically digging their own graves by failing to cooperate with one another. And I really don't understand what that mindset is. That's what I mean about like, oh, so this is really just a psychological problem that could be solved through cooperation, not necessarily co-ops, but cooperation. And yet that does not seem to happen. I find that baffling.
4: Yeah, it is. It, it, I think they feel helpless because the co-op mm-hmm. is so big and yeah. it's run from the top down kind of, you know, theoretically it's from the bottom up, but in actuality they spoon feed, you know, the farmers what they need to know. And right. It, it's, complicated, but farmers really are at fault in a way because they just don't take control of their world.
3: Yes. They, they seem... Well, you know, I think they're... what's Okay, here's a here's a hy- hypothesis. I know we're getting way off topic, and we have two pages of questions <laughs> to get through, and I'm like, blebity, blebity. I apologize for that, because I, there are some really important questions I know you'll be able to give me good answers for, but, but um, to go back to that theory of, like, farmers shooting themselves in the feet, um, <clears throat> it does seem to me that um, if if farmers were to get together uh, in a more organized way, and there are organizations that are working hard to make that happen, and yet somehow it doesn't. Um, they wouldn't, you know, these being, having the prices beat down like they do for, uh, you know, for cattle, pork and chicken. I mean, it's the same across any sort of animal ag. That's kind of my bailiwick. That's my beat is animal agriculture and dairy was kind of new to me. That's why I did such a deep dive into it. And, um, and you know it's like these guys get to call the shots and i and it's really a distribution issue it seems to me it's like what you know you're encouraged oh here's my thread you were encouraged to get bigger and bigger and bigger and then the reality is is if you have say 20,000 chickens that you've raised you have no option but, to go with a big corporation that can take those chickens off your farm and process them and you know further distribute them. And I suppose it's the same if you get involved in the you know dairy farmers of America and you're one of those guys that has a thousand head of cattle, which I know is a pretty big size for a dairy farm. but um, you know then you, where are you going to go with the milk? It's like you can't possibly, as the farmer be the one who markets it. You can do it because you have a hundred cows, right? Which yeah, think, by the yeah, way, I, is bigger than remember, the average, right? I'm sorry that's a bigger than average herd i my my reading told me that the well, average herd was about depends between on fifty you, and seventy I mean,
4: um it's for today's market it's not i mean there there are a lot of dairies that are five ten fifteen thousand cows
3: oh yeah, place. the totally corporate ones yeah
4: yeah so yeah it's and and I'm a grazing dairy farm so I don't you know produce out as much milk have quite a bit less milk per cow
5: mm-hmm.
4: um, but back to your point about how they don't have a place to take it. But it's actually worse than that. As you know, the, the poultry producers and the pork producers mostly don't own their own animals.
3: Yes, that's right.
4: They're, just, they're really just working, as somebody calls them, hog house janitors. You know, they're only working <laughs> for <the preparation.
3: laughs> my God.
5: <laughs> yeah. So,
4: um, so they're really not very empowered at all. They can lose no. their contract next week, you know, if they that's don't right. do things right. And, and you're right, absolutely right about the dairy is that the, the markets that are available are getting smaller and smaller. I grew up on a dairy farm in, in Minnesota, and um, there were all little dairy farms all over the place. And there were there were probably a half a dozen companies that would want to buy your milk. Yeah. Nowadays, in those places, you're lucky if you can find one.
5: Mm-hmm. Some
4: people are losing their market. There's no nothing available, so they're not very empowered to be able to to be, be picky about anything or raise much hell. However, they could start to to um, Work together more. I'm thinking, for example, of uh, my brother has a dairy farm I grew up on, and, and, um he's in, in Minnesota. But right across the river in Wisconsin, there's in, there's the Westby Co-op. It's an organic. They have both conventional and organic milk. uh uh-huh. But it's own. It's a small regional co-op that's owned by the members, and they're very active, and in their board of directors, are very active in directing their um, their organization, and they they sell both organic and, and conventional milk. And, so if we have a lot of these little regional ones, they have their own product, their own label. Right. They, they could start, you know, they're big enough that they can have some clout. They have 170-some organic farmers selling to them. Oh, wow. But they're, they're not big enough that they lose, they lose control.
3: Yeah. Well, that does seem to be the answer to a lot of agriculture's woes is, uh, you know, <clears throat> smaller is better and re and cooperation like that is better and re regionalizing the food system. That's that's after 10 years of doing this radio program. That's the takeaway for me. It's Uh like we can't just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger and aggregating everything under two or three labels and only having production facilities in a few places. It's got to be broken back down into small regional hubs you know that That's right. it
4: works best that way but remember yeah. you you're aware the corporations they don't look that way the big corporations they want to consolidate oh, it all and so they're fighting course. against that and so we have to recreate the whole food system in a way
3: Yes so we do It's
4: going to happen without unless, we, unless farmers take a strong role in making it happen
3: I would agree with you Francis okay now we're going to we're going to take go off of that cuz we're going to have to take <laughs> we are have to take a sponsor break in a minute and I want to. I want to get back to what we were supposed to be talking about. So now okay. we were chatting about, okay, here's something that's very important, and I know you can give us some good insight into this. So the Farm Bill, as you pointed out to me, is making some moves or planning to make some moves on the National Organic Standards Board. What What is happening? What are they proposing in the Farm Bill that you well, feel would be a problem?
4: It relates closely to what we were talking about yep. earlier about the big corporations credit take over the market. You know, organic now is a $50 billion a year industry. Right. And the big corporations are trying to consolidate the small organic things, and they're and, and they're pushing a lot of them for hydroponic production to be organic. And yeah. it is now allowed. Right. And one of the hydroponic producers went to um, a Farm Bill hearing last summer and talked, and Pat Roberts was there who doesn't like organic, mm-hmm. and he, um, this guy told him, you know, we need more control. The industry doesn't have enough control. Um over the organic standards, we need to have more industry representation on the board. Um, we need to take some of the power away from the National Organic Standards Board, hmm. and that's exactly what the Senate bill is trying to do. Hmm. The Senate move is to do just that: give the industry a stronger role um, in creating the standards. And of course, the industry will want to dilute them to make yes. it easier for them to uh, make a buck.
3: Sure. And charge a higher price because it's organic. Now, you yourself, when I was reading up on you, you had some remarks to the um, National Organic Standard Boards regarding the status of hydroponics. And I was kind of curious about, um, you know, why hydroponic agriculture should not be considered organic. W- why do you feel that way?
4: Well, I, if look back to the, the origin of, of organic farming. All the pioneers, you know, like the Rodales, the um, Lady Eve Balfour sure. from England and so on. It's all about soil. Right. Soil, and, and soil is an incredibly complex uh, thing. A teaspoon of, of fertile soil can have more individual organisms than there are people on the face of the earth, you know,
5: a billion. Yeah.
4: And it's, it's incredibly complex um, ecology. And you can't m- mock that by growing plants in a bucket of water. You just, <laughs> you just can't do it. And so um, that, the, the, all, the origins of organic are with organic matter in the soil and building the soil. And so to take it into hydroponics is just ant- antithetical to organic farming. Now I'm not opposed to hydroponics. If people want to, you know, that's fine. Right. Growing in the inner cities, but it shouldn't be called organic. Mm-hmm. That's what most organic farmers think. It just should, should not be called organic. It should
3: just be hydroponics. Because, I mean, they yeah. use a lot of chemicals in that water. I mean, not only do they have to produce the nutrients in some sort of water-soluble method, um, that mimic the uh, soil chemistry, but they, <clears throat> I mean, they still have to apply, uh, I would imagine there still has to be some sort of agrochemical use, um, or maybe not. I mean, what, there are no pests, right? There's no pests, there's well, no weeds. Well,
4: um, you know, inorganic, there are, there is a list of approved synthetic materials. Some of them have pesticidal effect, but they're very mild, and I sat me and myself being on having been on the organic standards board, mm-hmm. it's a very rigorous process to allow something to be on this list of synthetic materials allowed in organic production.
5: Mm-hmm. We
4: have to evaluate mm-hmm. it based upon the effect on human health, environment, and so on. And um, so, those that are allowed are, are not the, the strong synthetic chemicals, but right. anyway, so there are some um, materials that can be used in organic that, that do help with pests, but the primary Emphasis in organic farming is to have a, a complex system like in soils and with rotations and cover crops and so on that circumvent the need for pesticides. So you're, you're taking all these preventative methods, steps to not have to use pesticides. Yeah. Um, so that's true whether it's, you know, it's an organic. And, and in hydroponics, they can isolate, and in a greenhouse, they can isolate to a certain degree um, the crop from pests.
3: I would think nevertheless,
4: so. Nevertheless, um, we still. Organic farmers, for the most part, feel very strongly that um, that a bucket of water is not the same as growing in a soil.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, I, I would agree with you. Of course, it's not, but it's uh, at the same time. It's I'm still having a little bit of a hard time wrapping. I mean, I, I get why you don't want it to be called organic, but on a certain level, it's kind of is because it is just a bucket of water with some nutrients thrown in it, and. Um, you know, it's it's a it's a distinction that I think for most lay people is probably a bit harder to digest than. um sure, I understand. Then for Maybe one more um, yeah.
4: The organic to get certified organic, you have to have an organic system plan. It has
5: hmm.
3: it,
4: it has to do with many different factors, like like rotations and how you're um, um, managing your your crop and, and for beneficial insects and all so, all these things. Well, with uh, hydroponics, basically all they do is they only use Inputs that are allowed They're on the national list So it's, it's kind of what we call input substitution So instead of having if you're, if, For example, if you're switching from conventional agriculture on the ground To organic You can't just stop using all the um, Synthetic pesticides, chemicals And start using Similar chemicals for organic they don't, We don't have the similar kind of chemicals Right um, You have to have a complex thing for your soil fertility or, You know, rotations and cover crops and so on And so it's a whole different system change but um, hydroponic is pretty much like input substitution, like substituting inputs, chemical inputs for ones that are approved for organic. It's not a complex kind of system at all. Right. So, so that's that's kind of the big difference.
3: All right. Well, listen, let's take a quick break. We have to do a sponsor drop. Um, we'll be right back with Francis Dickey, who is taking me through some really interesting territory. And after we come back from the break, I'm going to ask you to make a quick remark about Monsanto, about uh, glyphosate. But that'll be just coming up. So stay tuned.
1: To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com.
3: This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights, and I am your host, Katie Kiefer. And chatting with uh, Francis Tickey, an organic dairy farmer and um, chairman of the National Organic... Let's see, where are your many... You have so many bona fides. Um, You are chair of the Organic Farmers Association Policy Committee, uh, among other things. Um, So let's go back to... First, we're going to ask a question about glyphosate. Do you think glyphosate is... I mean, you're a dairy farm. you're an organic farmer, I get it. But just as a farmer, what do you think about glyphosate? Because if you, do you ever follow the Food and Farm Discussion Lab? Do you know that group on Facebook?
4: Oh, Food and, say it
3: again? Food and Farm Discussion Lab, Mark Brazo.
4: No, I better look it up, huh? Oh,
3: yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is fascinating. I hardly ever dare to post anything on there because they are a bunch of rabid glyphosate users. They love that. And um, I made the mistake of, I mean, really, scary people. I made the mistake of of, uh, interviewing a woman named Carrie Gilliam who wrote uh, Whitewash, which was a story of how Monsanto managed to get glyphosate approved even though the studies were not conclusive that it was safe for human consumption. Of course, that's a very controversial topic right now, and so I just wondered quickly what your thoughts about glyphosate are,
4: because it seems like... Well, I think we have to keep in mind that when glyphosate came in like in the 90s, um, it was considered one of the more benign chemicals. Yeah. Probably it is, because some of them are more toxic. However, now we use it so widely that it's ubiquitous. It's probably in your bloodstream right now.
3: Apparently it is.
4: Yeah. It's (laughs) everywhere, and so... And and I think you're probably right that it was misrepresented. I mean, we, it was thought to be so benign; it probably wasn't quite as benign.
5: Yeah. Uh,
4: one of the related issues are that that glyphosate is losing its effectiveness because plants right. are becoming resistant, and so they're having to use other kind of chemicals like
3: 2,4-D
5: and,
4: and yeah. dicamba, and these are worse. Yes. Um, in many ways. So the thing is that we need to. Try to find a different way of doing things than just putting different chemicals on.
3: Well, that leads us right into soil chemistry now, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) And because one of the things that I hear a lot about is... um, you know, from various farms and author farmers and authors that I speak to, um, is you know that more it seems like more farmers, certainly small smaller scale farmers, are switching over to bigger crop rotations instead of just like two a year, two every you know one two like soy, corn, or soy sorghum yeah. or whatever. They're doing like two or three or four crop rotations, um, and I've seen pushback from that on various um, col- you know f- columns and. F- Forums where farmers discuss these things, um, so it's not as widespread as I'd like to see it get. But what do you think is happening with um with the whole sort of because it does seem very trendy. And did you read the wonderful book by David Montgomery? Yeah, Growing a Revolution.
4: Right. Did you like that I think book? That's the really I think that's really the frontier that we need to be going to. Mm-hmm. For example, glyphosate is used widely in, in several areas now, and the, probably the worst one is where they use it at the end of the growing wheat and they, they use it to kill the crop down. And so like it it's right on the wheat before harvest. But oh. that's a, a, aside from that, it's used a lot for cover crops. And cover crops are good yeah. between corn and soybeans, for example. But often the cover crop is only allowed to grow like a foot or a foot or less tall in the spring, and then it's hit with glyphosate. But there's something that organic farmers are pioneering that's really exciting and that conventional farmers can use is to let that cover crop, that rye cover crop, grow up like six or seven feet tall. Mm-hmm. And just before it starts to make a seed, we roll it down with a roller crimper, mm-hmm. and it flattens it out, and then it lays it down and makes a thick mulch on the ground. Whoa. And then you can plant you can plant a crop in there, like soybeans, for example, and the crop will grow right through the mulch, right? but it'll hold the weeds from growing through. Right. And um, it'll hold the moisture. It has a lot of benefits that can be uh, with it. So do uh-huh. you
3: see that as, as an expanding um, option for even, you know, the the massive corn? I mean, yeah. you're in corn country there. I mean, Iowa yeah, is corn
4: country. I think it can be used in uh, in growing um, in conventional cropping because if people who are looking at that, you know, they have an extra tool. Organic farmers, if we do that, we roll it down. If we, we have to get a high level of mulch, about 8,000 pounds per acre of, of, right. of cover crop to roll down, and then it will mulch out the weeds. Yeah. But other conventional farmers do have the backup of herbicides they can do it, and if it works, they don't need any herbicides great but if they need a herbicide, they maybe need only one application instead of two or three right and so that's moving in the right direction what's the and cost I,
3: what's the okay? cost differential between using an herbicide and planting a cover crop? Is there a big difference in what it costs a farmer to do one or the other of those two programs
4: um, actually it's probably fairly similar mm-hmm. good, good point However, there are a, a lot of management factors in order to make be able to manage it um, i mean it so you farmers have to get used to how to make it all work it's more than just it's not a straight switch of, of a herbicide for a cover crop mm-hmm. but the cover crop has a lot of other benefits you know building the soil up uh, sequestering carbon yeah and it, it can build the soil fairly quickly and so um and, and I, I could kind of segue a little bit into the water quality issue. That really Let's do that. Here. Because <laughs> corn and soybeans, you know, two-thirds of Iowa's land surface, the total land surface is covered in corn and soybeans every year. Yeah. And it's not a very resilient cropping system at all. No. For many reasons. But one of them is it's inherently leaky of nitrogen. Mm-hmm. And So you've heard of probably the nitrogen problem, the nitrate problems in the water in oh, Iowa.
3: I most definitely have. We're going to discuss those <laughs> in depth right now. Yeah.
4: Yes, and, and the thing is that people think it has to do primarily with uh, using too much nitrogen fertilizer. Mm-hmm. But the research shows that that is not the primary cause. The primary cause is that the cropping system itself is fundamentally flawed. It, it's inherently leaky of nitrogen. Just by, even if you optimize the nitrogen fertilization, fertilization just do a perfect job, yeah. you're only going to reduce that nitrate leaching by 5 or 10%. Cover crops will reduce it by 30, 30 to 60% on nitrate leaching. The, the, the crux of the issue is that corn and soybeans are annual crops. They mm-hmm. have live roots in the soil for only about four months of the year, four right. to five months of the year. So during most of the year, there are no live roots in the soil that take up that nitrate, and it's soluble. So when it rains, the nitrate goes down down with the rainwater to the tile drainage system and out to the rivers. Right. And it's not just the fertilizer because... The productive soils like in Iowa have about 10,000 pounds per acre of nitrogen in the organic matter. And the soil microbes are constantly circulating that around from, from organic matter, nitrogen, to nitrate, mineral nitrogen, and back into the organic matter. Hmm. And so when there are no live roots there, it is very susceptible to leaching. Right. So during the fall and the spring, nitrate leaching is just um, going to happen. And because this cropping system is flawed... And it's not a matter of doing better job of nitrogen fertilization. It's a matter of having a more, a tighter crop rotation, like mm-hmm. you brought up yourself. Mm-hmm. Some other things like, but cover crops can fill that gap between the time the corn and soybeans are, are mature and no longer growing, in the fall through the fall into the spring until it's time to plant a crop again. They can have those live roots down there, scavenging that nitrate before it goes off into the river.
3: Right. Right. Well, that, I mean, so we, we were talking, um, we were chatting about, um, Bill Stowe, uh, when we first started corresponding and he's been a guest on the show, like maybe three or four times. And I really oh. followed the case um, that he brought against the upriver counties. And at the time, uh, you know, we were talking about tile drainage and, and what he was suing was to have the tile drainage either inspected or revamped or improved, increased, whatever. I mean, he was seeing it as kind of like, that's the fix to the problem and he wanted the farmers to, you know, address that from the tile drainage issue. And that was very unpopular with the upstate farms. And of course they got governor um, brain dead, as I'm told, he's (laughs) (laughs) governor. That's your pal, Michael Richards. (laughs) That was his term for him. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> I just love that guy. He's amazing. Um, but anyway, he, um, he was saying that, of course, Brandstad totally sided with the, with the, uh, you know, the, the financial power of those big mega ag businesses and um, essentially shut the waterworks down. Can you kind of just take the next part of that story for us and tell us what happened? Well, they, he lost the suit. Um,
4: a court threw it out. Yeah. Threw out the, the court case. And But uh, Bill Stone is absolutely right. The problem is the tile drainage of uh, the drainage coming out of the tiles.
5: Mm-hmm. But
4: there's two options. One is to have a more ecologically sound cropping system on the field so you right. don't lose the nitrate to the tile drains. And the other one is that if we can't do that, then you have to have what we call conservation diapers at the end of the field.
5: Mm.
4: And what that means is that, you know, we're, we're, we might think of like an incontinent field, you know, it's you need the diaper. And that would be things like there are bioreactors and wetlands and... Um, buffer strips that can be used to try to collect some of that nitrate. Right. But to me, that's really a a Band-Aid. It may be a necessary Band-Aid in some cases, but we're not even doing that. But the real solution is to make it more ecologically sound on the landscape because the research shows, for example, that if you have perennial crops on the landscape, for example, prairie, there was virtually Mm -hmm. no nitrate leaching at all. Right. So, um... The, the problem is the crop. You seem to understand that, but in Iowa, very few people understand that. I have to say this over and over and over.
3: Why? Yeah. It's so. It seems it's very straightforward. not a matter of doing
4: a better job of fertilization. It's batter, we have to um, tweak the whole cropping system, and the, the politicians don't understand it. Right. And the farmers keep saying, well, it has to be somebody else. It's the lawns in Des Moines or something that's causing the problem. And so, <laughs> um, You're kidding. Oh, no, really. It's it's very difficult to get this communicated um, to the, especially the politicians, They some of the quotes I have from these politicians that were just off the wall.
3: Well, I think they're the generally bureau, very
4: stupid. Well, well, they lie. Basically, they lie um, about what's going on, and they just try to keep enough confusion going that nothing happens.
3: Well, I think I would agree with you that they, they don't seem to understand. I'm, I certainly agree that they lie. Um, but I, I think that they, that they also do not understand anything basic. I mean, a lot of these guys who run the farm states... They just do what their big donors tell them. That seems to be my, I mean, that's my takeaway from this, my impression of what, how this works. And so something like a very straightforward proposition that you're suggesting, which could be written into the Farm Bill and funded... I mean, there could be funding for this, right? Because wasn't there supposed to be like all kinds of funding for conservation and stewardship of the land and yeah, blah, de, blah, de, blah. Yeah. And and that some of that funding seems to be on the verge of being stripped out of the Farm Bill. And this is yeah. just, I mean, what you're talking about is to me the idea of planting, you know, prairie grass or whatever, you know, rye, wheat, whatever it is that would work to fix nitrogen, to regenerate well, soil, you know, seems like an easy... F- fix. It's just such a com- common sense solution. I, I don't well, understand. I have
4: a solution, actually, and, and I, I want to try to tell you what it is here, because I think it's really the way to go. And, and basically the, the background is that the farm groups will say, well, you can't regulate agriculture because every farm is different,
5: mm. and so
4: you you can't have one practice that's going to work everywhere. It just won't work. You can't regulate it. The, pro- the thing is, there is, a, there is a flexible regulatory system that we can use for water quality, and the model right. is soil conservation. Back in the 1985 Farm Bill, um, a law was passed. You know, the bill, bill said that anybody who gets subsidies who has highly erodible land has to have a soil conservation plan,
5: mm-hmm. and
4: it's a flexible plan. They don't say you have to do this and you have to do that. They say you have to meet the goal of, of soil erosion being below a certain tolerance level, and you can use any practice you want. Mm-hmm. And fortunately USD has a soil loss equation, and you put in your farm practices as input into the, um, the computer model, yeah, it spits out what your expected soil erosion is. And if it's above the T level, then you have to go back and add more conservation practices to your farming until you can get below that T level. Right. We could do the very same thing for water quality. We right. have the research data. We could have a model that says, okay, you've got to meet a T level for nitrogen. Right. And for phosphorus. And, and so you, you can input whatever will we'll make the computer model. We have the data. And you can put in your par- farming practices into the computer model. It will tell you how much nitrate you're going to leach and, um, and you have to meet a T-value. If, you, if you're not going to make it, you go back and you add something else. It can be cover crops. It can be buffer strips. It can be a lot of different things. Sure. But you have to meet the T-value. And so we could have that in the farm bill. We could say, okay, if you're going to get any kind of farm payment, or we could just say straight out, you've got to have a water quality plan that meets the T-value for nitrogen and for phosphorus. We could solve our water quality problems within a very, very short time hmm. if we do that. Otherwise, we're not going to solve it all. When I was with you, I worked at USDA in 1988 through 92, and I was part of the launching of a national water quality initiative back in 1988. Wow. And how it
3: progressive. Was,
4: um, <laughs> it was based on research, extension, um, technical assistance, financial assistance. Yeah. And the idea was that we could solve our water quality problems in five years nationally. Mm. And so it was going to be voluntary. Um, it wasn't going to be regulatory because we could do it voluntary. Well, you can see that was how long ago. That's 30 years ago. Yeah. And and so we, we can't do it voluntarily. It's going to require some regulation. And to me, the way to do it is a flexible regulatory scheme where farmers have to meet the goal, but they can do whatever practices they want to make it. To, to and
3: it. get some kind of assistance to do it, right? Because isn't one be of the...
4: also. Farmers could apply for assistance. But like with soil conservation, they have to meet the T value for soil yeah. erosion. And they can apply for conservation assistance to, to help them make that T value. So we could have both. We could have... Um, they could apply for for assistance to do it, but they have to meet the goal. Right, right. We for, can solve the problem overnight, but we're not getting anywhere in Iowa. The, the farm the farm organizations lie and they say that we're we're improving our water quality, but the data shows we're not. Mm-hmm. And so we've been doing this for many years, and we're not getting anywhere. Yeah, and, and um, you know we have this nutrient reduction strategy in Iowa. In order, the EPA has mandated it so that we can reduce the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. Right. Well, you know, the, the whole thing about the Gulf of Mexico dead zone, back in the early 2000s, the goal was by 2015 we are going to reduce the dead zone from the size of New Jersey, which it was this year, to the yeah. size of Rhode Island.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: Well, we've not made any progress. So when 2015 came around, they said, oh, well, the goal is now 2035. We're going to have Oh no!
3: Goal. And by that so- time, it'll be the size of the Gulf of Mexico. <laughs>
4: <laughs> so, so, you know, we haven't made any, my point is we haven't made any progress. And we're not going to make any progress in this voluntary approach because it's complicated, but some research shows that, you know, with all the money we're paying for farmers for conservation practices, after 10 years, they have about the same number of practices on the land as they had before because the new ones that were bought were paid for, that were fine, but the old ones were dropped off at the bottom end. Mm -hmm. And so we're not making a lot of progress. We're not really making any progress. And so it's going to require regulation, and I think a flexible regulatory scheme like what I'm... Bringing out would be perfect to make it happen.
3: I think that sounds incredibly sensible, and you are a very sensible man. And this has been a total pleasure for me to chat with you. And I hope you will join me again. Unfortunately, we have to call it a day at this point. Um, but I want to thank you so much for being on the show and, and let's do it again. And I'm going to take hiatus in a few weeks, but, um, next fall I'll call you, we'll do another program about water and water quality. I love the idea that you have a solution. I'd love to put that solution out more broadly and, you know, let people start understanding and percolating those ideas because they're really essentially very simple common sense approaches. And there's just, you know, it's, it's really, it's money and greed that are getting in the way of this. And that's, you know. That's 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 a boundary that can be overcome at some point. So thank you so much, Francis. Um, are, can people learn more about you? Like I know you wrote a book. Do we want to promote your book? It's a new vision for Iowa food and agriculture.
4: Oh no, I wrote that when I ran for Iowa Secretary of Agriculture, <laughs> and so it was focused on that. On that, so we yeah, don't need to, we, don't, we don't need to promote that. <laughs>
3: Well, I hope you try to run for office again because honestly, I think you have you have the voice of reason, my friend. Thank you so much for joining me, and thank you to Wisconsin Dairy, uh, so Wisconsin Cheese, for my sponsorship as always. Um, and thanks to my wonderful engineer Dave. And um, we'll see you next week, folks. Thanks for tuning in. Bye bye for now.